Welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 29th of June, 2022. The topic was managing sleep challenges in adolescence. On the panel, we had Dr. Amanda Gamble, clinical psychologist, Dr. Sophie Lee, clinical psychologist and researcher at the Black Dog Institute, and Stephanie, our lived experience representative. Chairing the session is Dr. Carol Newell. Hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's podcast, Expert Insights Podcast for Health Professional. We're going to be speaking about managing sleep challenges in adolescence. So welcome, um, everyone, tonight. Uh, Before we get started, I want to give my acknowledgement of country. The Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander as people's Um, as Australia's first peoples and traditional custodians. Um, We value the culture's identity and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community. And we'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and are committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. So welcome tonight. Our Expert Insights um, for Health Professional podcast is delivered every last Wednesday um, of the month. And uh, so please do check us out. It's all recorded. And if you've missed previous podcasts, you can find us anywhere on SoundClouds, uh, Apple iTunes, um, and we're recorded on there. So it's just a little reminder that we're recording um, and do check us out. Um, But of course, we do love uh, this live broadcast as well. Without further ado, um, let me introduce you just briefly, and then I'm going to get them to introduce themselves. Um, We've got Dr. Amanda Campbell tonight, who's a clinical psychologist, Dr. Sophie uh, who is a clinical psychologist and becoming quite a prolific researcher at the Black Dog Institute. Everywhere I go, every colloquium I go to, her name pops up. Um, so, um, And then we've got Stephanie, who's our wonderful lived experience representative, and she's going to come in and speak to us about sleep and her experience in adolescence. Oh, and also myself. I'm Dr. Carol Newell. I'm the moderator and a clinical psychologist for tonight. So let's start with Amanda. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your area in sleep and adolescence. Yeah. Okay. So um, as you said, I'm a clinical psychologist, um, but I'm also just a massive sleep nerd and have always been like fascinated with sleep. I love anything to do with sleep. And I, I started out my career doing research on um adolescence and anxiety disorders and I became really interested in the overlap between anxiety and sleep Um, and so when I got the opportunity I went off to the Woolcock Institute in Sydney which is a big sort of sleep and respiratory research centre and I spent about nine years there did do a little bit of research um, looking at treatments for adolescent sleep using cognitive behavioural therapies, but mainly I just worked in the clinic there, um, which was um, just an amazing place to train. Um, so I saw most of the paediatric clients, so the, the sort of primary school age kids and the adolescents with sleep problems. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I, I left and I made a tree change to the beautiful South Coast. So now I'm just in private practice down Lovely. here. Lovely. Thanks, Amanda. Let's go to Steph now. Steph, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I live with bipolar disorder and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so my experience in sleep, I have experienced the full range of, um, sleeping too much, you know, like in a depressive episode and then, um, in mania, not sleeping at all. Um, I think prior to being diagnosed in, um, 2016, I would go through periods of, um, you know, uh, in a depressive episode, sleeping for like 12 plus hours a day. And then in a manic episode, not sleeping at all. I think the longest I went um, without sleep was about four days. Um, And with my anxiety and things like that, um, I get nightmares. So like my sleep, I've often experienced those sleep disturbances. Um, So like I've, and um, the anxious thoughts that sort of like wave over you when you're trying to get over like to bed, it might not be something um, like an event that's happening in your life, but those thoughts that just keep ticking over at night. So um, yeah, I, I, um, 
was yeah I after the yeah after being diagnosed I didn't really realize what um why my sleep was so out of whack or really understand what was going on um so it's been a good learning journey for me to understand how crucial sleep is a part of like keeping on top of my mental health um and like I work a busy life like most of us do so um I have made it my top priority um and the biggest tick box to say if you've got your sleep in order then you're doing great (laughs) Thanks, Steph. You know what? I have to say, you you sound like you've gone through such a journey, but you're quite successful in your career now. We were just talking about it. So it just shows that through that journey, you can still like come out the other end and still be functioning really well as long as you kind of get on top of the really important parts of, you know, mental health, right? Um, So tell us a bit about yourself. (laughs) Yep. So... So as Carol said, I'm a clinical psychologist um, and also a postdoctoral research fellow at the Black Dog Institute. And one of my areas of research interest is is sleep, um, particularly sleep difficulties in adolescence and how that relates to other mental health concerns like anxiety and depression. Um, I'm also really interested in looking at gender differences and Um, biological factors that affect sleep and how that differs between boys and girls and and men and women um, as well. So it's um, as as similar to Amanda, I'm just really fascinated by how sleep is is involved in so many other aspects of our our health um, and seems to be really, you know, a really, really important factor to, to manage to ensure that other aspects of your health are managed and working out how we can help people um, ensure that they get adequate um, adequate sleep and good quality sleep so that they are um, as well as, as well as they can be. Would it be fair to say, like, I'm also fascinated by sleep as well as one of the big areas in clinical psych. I became extra fascinated with sleep after having kids as well because that's like the all <laughs> moms fascinated by sort of sleep. Sort a crash course in... <laughs> Crash course in watching your sleep be yes, obliterated. Absolutely. Yeah. And going, oh, that. I know. Um, and then hopping yeah, on to the so and going, how do I get this infant to sleep? So, um, so Steph, <laughs> tell us a little bit because your health, you know, your mental health challenges, they emerged around adolescent. And that was kind of like a little bit of a journey for you discovering the impact of lost sleep or sleep disturbances around that adolescent period. Could you tell us a little bit about that adolescent phase and when you start to have these? Um, these difficulties, these challenges around sleep? What was that like? Uh, Well, looking back on it, I didn't really notice that there was a problem because, like, when you're in your, like, adolescent phase, you know, all your friends are staying up late. It's cool to see, like, who can stay up the latest. Um, When I was a later teen, a lot of my friends were going out clubbing or having, like, those those party benders and we weren't getting, like, a lot of sleep then. So it was really hard at the time to acknowledge that there was a problem because I guess everyone around me was staying up late. Um, But then I think going through periods of not sleeping, I become like became more irritable, especially um, towards my parents in in high school. Um, I noticed like I was staying up late to do assignments or to do like things that I love, like playing piano and things like that. Um, But then not having sleep, I'd be snappy and very irritable. Um, So it was really difficult to sort of tell um, what was normal. Um, And then I would also notice dips in my, like if I hadn't gone to sleep the night before, like dips in my my mood I'd be like a bit more depressed or um or when I realized that there could be something more going on um that was I guess related to the the manic uh, the aspect of bipolar is I, I didn't feel like I needed to sleep I felt um really really good on like one hour of sleep and that one hour would last me days but then I would crash and it would be and it would be the complete opposite and I, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. So um, those were sort of the things I think looking back, I I can, I have insight into why that was happening now. Um, but at the time it was like, I think because my peers were also staying up late, it was really difficult to just tell. Yeah, adolescence sounds like it's a weird time for sleep, isn't it? It's really gonna just from your description of it, you're talking about how all your peers were so staying up and their sleep was disordered too. And and so that was a really hard pickup for you to go, oh, my sleep's not okay. Something there's an, something going on with my mental health. So 
Amanda, what is that major difference in that adolescent phase compared to, say, children and adults with sleep difficulties? What's unique about adolescence? Because we're already getting a hint of that mm-hmm. from Steph and her description of what it was yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, her. Steph just mani- you know mentioned all the factors that I that I would say really make adolescence quite unique. So in adolescence, we get this sort of perfect storm of like three factors that come together to really increase the risk of of poor sleep. So the first one we're probably going to talk a lot about tonight, but um, that's sort of, you know, as young people enter puberty, they undergo some changes in their sort of biological drive to sleep and wake. They're sort of so Steph just sort of said, you know, everyone's staying up late. Everyone sort of has this biological drive to sleep and wake later. Um, so adolescents are unique in that they tend to present with a timing problem. So the main problem is, you know, the timing of their sleep is mismatched with what sort of society want from them. Um, so you've still got this biological vulnerability. And then on top of that, you get all the lifestyle factors that Steph just alluded to as well. So, you know, it's the first time of life when people are really starting to burn the candle, like burn the candle at both ends. They're staying up later. They're partying. They've got a lot of schoolwork on. They've got extracurriculars. They might have a part-time job. And all of that is happening at a time when parents no longer really have the power to set bedtimes like they used to with the little kids. Um, And then the third factor is, you know, adolescence is is the time when we start to see the onset of psychological problems like anxiety disorders or mood disorders. So you really sort of get all these these three vulnerabilities coming together um, and you don't really see that at any other time in the lifespan. So they are, you know, really quite unique in that way. So this is delayed sleep phase. Is that right? Is that is that the name for it? Delayed sleep phase cycle? Yeah, so so what will happen is that um, you know, as people enter puberty, obviously a lot of their hormones change. One of the hormones that changes is melatonin. So melatonin starts to be released later into the bloodstream and it peaks later and then it's mopped up later the next morning. So um, you know, that that really sort of creates a tendency to become more night owl-like. And all to answer your question, so so all teenagers will undergo that tendency to delay to some degree, but then there'll be about 10% of them where that delay is really quite significant. Um, so they might not be able to get to sleep until, you know, 2 a.m. They might not be able to get out of bed until 11 a.m. Um, those kind of um, young people we would meet criteria for delayed sleep phase syndrome, which is a circadian rhythm disorder. Yeah. Yeah. So how prevalent are sleep problems in adolescence? So are there peak ages for sleep challenges and and how do they contribute to mental health challenges? Um, yeah, so as Amanda was saying, adolescence is this period of where or a perfect storm is basically taking place and, and that's not just um, in regards to sleep problems but also mental health problems in general. Um, in terms of a peak age um, of onset, I'm not aware of any data that suggests that there is a specific point within adolescence that that necessarily occurs, but it definitely it definitely appears to be post-pubertal. Um, so there's that um, increased vulnerability to sleep disturbance, which seems to be very heavily associated with um, the development of anxiety and depression um, as as well. And sorry, there are a few parts to your question, and I I think I've forgotten them. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Do you, I mean, which one comes first, right? It's really hard to tell, I imagine. Is it the sleep problems that lead to the onset of mental health challenges or is it mental health challenges that disrupt sleep? What What's the kind of findings at the moment? Yeah, look, I think we've been doing research into that very question and, um, and what we have found is that certainly um, disturbed sleep can be a risk factor for the onset of, particularly for the onset of depression. Um, but at the same time, uh, sleep problems is a diagnostic characteristic of numerous mental health problems and mental disorders. So sometimes that chicken egg question isn't easy to, to answer and you've often got a comorbidity between the two. Uh, like I think comorbidity is approximately 50% between anxiety um, and sleep disorders and depression and sleep disorders. So um in terms of treatment, it's often working out 
which is the primary problem and targeting that initially. Um, but I think we were talking about it before. I, I don't think that targeting sleep is ever going to do any harm. Um, so improving sleep is never going to make someone unwell. So you can never really go too wrong um, if you're uh, helping someone to improve their sleep. Yeah. Now, I can't believe I've not got this question down, but I'm just going to throw it at both of you, Amanda and Soph, and jump in, Steph, if you have a theory of this one. Why do we have this delayed sleep phase cycle in adolescence? What's the basis for the shift? What? Why does it happen? There's, there's a really great book about sleep um, that's really a, a lot of people know about it. It's um, written by Matthew Walker. He's a um, He's a sleep neuroscientist that work, I think, in uh, in at UCLA or UC Berkeley or something like that. Um, and the theory that he proposes is that adolescence was a period when um, there was increased independence and movement away from parents, and so teenagers got together when their parents were asleep um, and they socialized and, and and this may have been something that um, just naturally evolved in in adolescence this kind of propensity to want to go to sleep later and wake up later as well um, of course with evolutionary type theories there's no way to actually test them so I think it's very much just a theory what about you Amanda are there any other theories related to this delayed sleep phase cycle Look, I'm glad that um, Sophie sort of mentioned that one because generally when clients ask me, I, I tend to reach, um, so much of our sleep has evolved, you know, it's an, it's an adaptation um, from an evolutionary point of view. So, you know, my, my lay theory that I sort of tell clients about is that, you know, when sleep was sort of evolving, the, the adolescents and the young adults were really the leaders of the tribe, people my age were dead, you know, we were taken out, <laughs> we were too old, we did not survive. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's, there isn't an, uh, an advantage to, you know, being able to be awake later, being able to protect the tribe. Um, we are very vulnerable sleepers. So, um, you know, when you look at the animal kingdom, dolphins sleep one half of their brain at each time, they're never fully unaware, whereas humans are. So, um, yeah, I, that's usually sort of how I explain it. That there's an adaptate, you know, an, an evolutionary advantage to actually being able to wake and sleep yeah. and wake later. Yeah, yeah. But of course, in the contemporary world, it's a bit of a struggle now for adolescents. You know, you're not kind yeah. of protecting the tribe from predators. Yeah, you're just exactly. <laughs> struggling to get that schoolwork in yeah. and trying to manage all the extracurricular. So, Steph, you know, what was it like for you as an adolescent? Like, what was the trigger point for you to go, "Oh gosh," you know, that onset of bipolar? What was normal adolescent? And then starting to notice this is not, this is not like other adolescents, like. Can you tell us a little bit more of your story? Um, I think for me, I am one of those people that um, like wanted to believe I can fix everything myself and didn't want to let anyone in to help me. And um, at the, I guess the the worst of my mental, or when I was really really unwell, um, I was hospitalized um, in a psychiatric hospital. Um, and going through those admissions and learning about like the importance of keeping on top of sleep and your mental health was a good, like a trigger point for me. Um, the other thing that I guess personally made me want to get on top or get on top of my mental health and my sleep in particular is that I like the, the quality of relationships and connections that I had with people were really, um, I guess they, they weren't as good as they can be. And I think without, Without a doubt, I think we can all say humans like survive on human connection, and that's what brings us, you know, the life and the soul and all of that happy, happy joy. Um, and I just wasn't, I wasn't a present friend. I couldn't, like, I was just so unwell that I didn't have the capacity to put effort into those relationships. And that was something, like, at where being a late adolescent, I was really craving. I was really, really craving social connection. Um, and I like going in and out of admissions. It it was pretty clear to me that like I, I had to take some ownership and some accountability over um, like what I was doing in my life to sort of make things a little bit more difficult for me. Um, so yeah, like making, have not having quality social connection or having those deep relationships was a pretty big factor in um, me wanting 
to sort of turn the wheel and go the opposite direction. That's such a like a, a um, nice way of putting it, right? Like, it, it, and it fits so nicely with Soph and Amanda's kind of theory, you know, that explanation. You're staying up later because you can socialize with each other and kind of protect the tribe. But if your relationship is not good because of the sleep impairments, is not doing what it's supposed to be doing anymore, and it's so important to kind of address that. So, what do we do in terms of treatment for adolescents? Um, given like they have a really ridiculous school schedule, I have a high schooler myself. I cannot believe what time they get up and the amount of work that they're doing. Um, so what are some of the um, big evidence-based tr- treatment frameworks for addressing sleep um, in adolescence? I might turn to Sophie and then go to Amanda. Um, well, I think uh, the gold standard treatment at the moment or the, the one with the most evidence backing it is cognitive behavioural therapy mm-hmm. for insomnia. Um so that is traditionally delivered uh, as an in-person therapy over an, over a number of sessions. Um, but at the Black Dog Institute, we recently developed a self-guided CBT for insomnia smartphone app, um, which we found worked really well um, in the adolescents who, who engaged in our study. And Probably one of the most interesting findings from that trial was that not only did that, um, it's a very, very simple app. It's just got a chat box that acts as a sleep coach, um, the sleep ninja who's a sleep coach, um, and he just talks the um, the young person through cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. So it's, it's very simple, six lessons, they're all 10 minutes each. Um, but as I was saying, the, probably the most fascinating finding was that not only did it improve insomnia symptoms in the adolescents, but it also improved depression. Um, and it wasn't just because they're engaging in an app and doing something that was kind of for their well-being. Their depression actually improved because their sleep improved. So there's this really nice bit of evidence yeah. to show that sleep is really, really, really important for, for your mood. Is this app available yet, Soph, or is it just in the trial phase? No, so we've completed the trial. So we, we conducted a reasonably large um, randomised control trial. It's now in the implementation um, phase. So people can um, people can request access to it um, by getting in touch with us at the Black Dog Institute. And I think Mel was going to post um, our email address if anyone was interested in getting access and using it with their with their clients. We'd be happy to um, facilitate that well, access. I might just grab it for my teenager, so... Just going <laughs> to install it into their phone while they're away and just, yeah. <laughs> so there is a question here uh, from an attendee. Is there much evidence for a sleep hygiene? Because sleep hygiene is the other intervention as well, which is, I mean, it's part of the, I imagine, the CBT module as well, right? Um, but when we're talking about sleep hygiene, it's all the cues leading up to bed and uh, wake up time, you know, kind of sleep rituals and what to have in your bedroom. Is there evidence for that, that sleep hygiene work? And that's a question from our Q&A box. Who wants to take this one? Amanda. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. So I get just working one-on-one with people, most people that I see, they come in and they've already they already know all about sleep hygiene. So they've, they've sort of, you know, they know not to have caffeine. They know not to nap. They've, you know, they've read all that sort of stuff. So from my point of view, I sort of see sleep hygiene as a necessary baseline, right? So you, it's very hard to improve your sleep without attention to that, to that sleep hygiene. But in my clinical work, it's rarely sufficient, so it's like you need the sleep hygiene and then you build your other interventions sort of on top of that. Um, so, so do you want to, I'm just aware I'm sort of thinking about my clinical work, so it might not be the same as, yeah, for what, you know, for your purposes, yeah. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add is that um, from our Sleep Ninja trial, participants who showed the greatest improvements were the ones that did more than just the sleep hygiene module. So. Um, with the app at six lessons and they're delivered sequentially. So you go do lesson one and then when you finish that, you go to lesson two. So those who only did sleep hygiene didn't actually improve compared to the control group who didn't get access to the app. Um, So I think, 
yeah, th there's some question around how effective it is on its own. But as Amanda said, I think that it is really important that people understand that sleep behaviours do play a role in how well they sleep. And I also think um, my own anecdotal experience is that for young people who are very new to sleep difficulties and sleep disturbance, it gives them something really tangible to do um, as opposed to other aspects of cognitive behavioural therapy, which are much more abstract, like, you know, worry time and thought management and that sort of thing. Um, so even as, as a means of engaging a young person and sort of saying these are some really easy steps step-by-step step, um, things that you can do to, to help your sleep is, is a really, it's actually nice, even if it's not effective on its own at improving sleep symptoms or insomnia symptoms, it's it's still, I think, an important aspect of, of the treatment. As you sort of said before, so it's not going to do any harm, you know? You know how you were sort of saying, like, if, if you help people with your sleep, you're never going to create harm. So if there's GPs out there listening or other clinicians listening, it's a really good first step to give, you know, to get that foundation right. Yeah. And beyond CBT for things like insomnia, when you've got this teen who's like super sleepy during the day and just having trouble falling asleep, um, are there other sort of uh, interventions that can be used? Um, things like melatonin and bright light protocol, are they evidence-based? How, how do they work, Amanda? Yeah, so so bright light protocols and melatonin um, are an evidence-based approach for not, not for insomnia. Mm. but for circadian rhythm disorders. So for that 10% mm -hmm. of kids, uh, or sorry, young people, that are really at that higher end of, of delay, so mm. lots of trouble falling asleep, lots of, you know, trouble attending school and waking up and so on. For the 90% um, that, are, that have just got a little bit of a delay, that sleep hygiene information um, and, and some other things that, that we're going to be talking about will we'll answer that that problem um, in that 10% though yes we, we use a more specialized treatment um, so a bright light protocol involves three phases the first phase um, parents and schools don't like very much because it involves allowing the young person to actually follow their natural drive to sleep and wake so we try and do that in school holidays and and we do that to establish a really conservative baseline of, of what their body clock their natural drive is. Um, and then in the second phase, we, we try and move their circadian rhythm back. So we actually try and advance, we try and go backwards using bright light in the morning. So we wake them a little bit earlier every morning, give them intense bright light upon awakening. And then in the evening, we try and pull their sleep forward using lots of dim light, um, lots of wind down and possibly timed melatonin administration as well. So, um, uh, that would usually include a very teeny tiny dose, like 0.25 milligrams, and it would be in the afternoon. So very different to how melatonin is often used for the treatment of insomnia. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there are, you know, quite a few options here, including that bright light protocol. That sounds fantastic. But what about blue light? Does that have any evidence? Because I've been hearing a lot about blue light. And I know, Steph, you're kind of strict with, you know, turning off the <laughs> mobile phone um, in the evening. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, <laughs> Sometimes <definitely. laughs> I also have like the blue light filters on all of my devices. Um, and I think on my laptop, when I'm like studying for uni or working late, I've got a setting on my computer where um, it automatically turns to like the blue light filter at about I, I, usually around 6.37. Um, because if I don't have it on and I'm studying late, um, I can, I, I will be awake. Like there's no doubt like in my experience it's just I will be awake till the the night the daylight comes back <laughs> but but is it like is it, it does it really disrupt sleep um so like what's the evidence around that blue light situation yeah so um increasingly it's looking like there isn't a great deal of evidence to suggest that it has much of an effect on sleep um, and actually it was Amanda who mentioned when we were chatting before that um, I, I think in a study that there was only 15 minutes difference in sleep onset times um, between uh, young people that were using um, blue light as opposed to those that had the filter on. So from a clinical perspective, 15 minutes is not is not much. Um, but as we were saying before, 
like putting a blue light filter on is probably doing no harm. Um, and if it gives someone peace of mind and it, it helps with, um, you know, the wind down and feeling calm, then absolutely it's, it's um, there's, there's no problem um, using those sorts of strategies. But Amanda might have um, something that she wants to add. Yeah, no, the only thing I was going to add to that is that, yeah, you're right, so the, the research sort of looks like blue light suppresses melatonin but it doesn't necessarily delay the onset of sleep or, or sort of disturb sleep after that. It seems like, you know, what you're actually doing with the device is a, is a bigger thing. But the caveat would be that for these, again, this like sort of 10% cluster of, of young people that have a really significant delay and, and potentially bigger problems with their melatonin, I would be more careful with their, their light. So sometimes just on a one-on-one basis in clinical work, I sort of get the sense that this person might be a little bit more sensitive to light or a little bit more, you know, it's a, a bit like Steph, you were saying for you, it's a, it's a huge deal. So yeah, there's some individual variation in there for sure. Yeah. yeah. And do you think it's not just a blue light, but just being on a screen because we've got a question here um you know is that screen use um and maybe not blue light is the kind of disruptive factor would you say so like what's your experience been with the adolescents that's come through come through around screen use yeah I, I did see um Jacqueline's question in there and it's a really good question um just in regards to sleep ninja um there is a function on the app where the sleep ninja does ask the um, young person, are you getting ready for bed? And if they say yes, they say, don't don't use me now. Let's chat in the morning. <laughs> um, so we do try. Uh, we're, we're very aware of you know um, of screen use and its perception of impact on sleep. Um, but yeah, I think one aspect that we need to consider, which I can see people are considering in the chat, is that when you're using a screen, it's not just blue light that you're engaging with you're doing a whole bunch of other things that has you thinking and um and requires you to be alert and that may be contributing to um the screen uses impact on on sleep I'm like you Steph I as a turn off my blue light filter I'm like it's a placebo effect for me and I'm well aware of it but it's just nice to know just turned it off yeah, I don't want to um, test the boundaries <laughs> you want to test the boundaries right um so f- um one of the things we see clinically uh you know and this is what I see in my practice as well so many fights between parents and adolescent about sleep onset it's like the parents are trying to enforce falling asleep and control when they fall asleep and also want to control when they wake up, which is where all the fights also erupt, the onset and trying to wake up. Um, um, and so why is that? Like what's happening? Because I know that relationships are really impaired around sleep with adolescent and parents. And how do we address it? Yeah, so um, Amanda was mentioning it before, um, and I'd be interesting, interested to hear how um, Steph has experienced this with her own parents. Um, but young people do experience a, a delay um, in their melatonin release and, um, and when they feel ready for sleep. Um, and that's, that's a biological factor. That's not um, adolescents deliberately um, disobeying their parents or being lazy when they're not waking up in the morning. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's not well known that our, our circadian rhythm does vary throughout our, our, our lifespan. Um, so as a, as you get older, um, rather than your, your circadian rhythm being delayed, it's actually a bit earlier than um, a, a sort of a mid-aged adult, um, which is why older people get tired earlier and wake up really early. Um, so that tension can occur because of that misunderstanding about, about adolescents just responding to their biological rhythms. Um, so the way we address it is we just provide parents with education around um, the biology of sleep and why their um, why their child is not sleepy until after them, um, and also why it's harder for them to to wake up in the morning. Um, and usually that's enough um, if the, if the parents understand that that's what's going on and it's it's not the child just um, disobeying. Um, then it does a great deal to kind of repair some of those fractured relationships around sleep. 
Yeah, what I used to do is um, just wait till my parents fell asleep. Like I'd turn on my light off when they told me to go to bed. And then as soon as I realized they were asleep, my light goes back on and back on the laptop. Um, so it, teenagers will find a way. <laughs> so it's no use trying to enforce that onset. It, it sounds like it's better to just have really good communication and understanding between the adolescent and the parent as to why this is happening. Amanda, any tips for parents? Because I do sometimes provide that psychoeducation and then they'll say to me, but they need to get to school in the morning. How yeah. do I get them out? I need something. Yeah, I know. I know. Like if I take off my psychologist hat and put on my mum hat, the hard thing is that parents have all the responsibility to the school um, and to these other things, but they don't. Have, they have none of the power, right? So it's it's a it is a really difficult position for parents to be in. And I agree a hundred percent with Sophie. You know, first of all, you've got to have great education around. You know what it is it's not laziness it's not defiance it can be this this biological delay um and so one of the things I often say just to create a little bit of empathy is I'll I'll sort of draw the the normal melatonin curve and then I'll draw the melatonin curve of of a delayed teenager and say okay well you know when you're trying to get them up at 6am their melatonin levels are probably how yours are at 4am how do you like to be woken up at four? Have you ever, you know, had to get up and go to Sydney Airport or whatever really early? Um, just to try and, yeah, just develop that empathy, develop that education. I think beyond that, all you can really do is actually treat the problem. So if there is a problem with a delayed rhythm, you know, to then get the young person towards some, you know, a specialist, get them towards their GP, get them towards, you know, Sleep Ninja, apps like that, to actually start to try and rein that delay in. Um, just because it's biological doesn't mean we can't treat it. So so we can absolutely bring these kids back. Yeah. To function. So um, this next question is this idea of this very early start for adolescent do you think that contributes? Because I've noticed a shift, right? They start earlier in high school. Um, do you think that contributes to poorer mental health in teens? Do you think? Oh, anyone can jump in for this well, one. I think for me um, it was definitely a problem when I was in school. I was doing a lot of extracurricular activities. Um, I worked part-time also. So I And I was one of, like, I was a school leader as well. So our start in high school was I had to be at school like 7.30 and then I'd be working and then studying late. Um, and that definitely severely impacted me in my, like, especially my senior year. Um, I found, like, it was a lot more difficult to get things done. I was more anxious. Um, so, like from my experience, I I do feel like it does impact in some capacity. Amanda, what about you? Do you think that this early start contributes to like the spike in mental health challenges for teens? Shall I answer with my mum hat or my psychologist hat? Um, <laughs> so go, go mom first. Go mom. Go hardcore mom. <laughs> no, look, I I think that look, there is some research. Um, uh, done in the US uh, uh, well, quite a long time ago now, where they actually deliberately delayed school start times in some American schools and they looked at attendance, the students' grades and their mood and different outcomes like that. And what they found is that everything improved. So we know if we make a later school start time, we know that's more optimal for young people. Um, however, with my mum hat on, you know, if I have one child that starts school at 8.30 and another one that can start at 10, you know, that's that's a bit of a nightmare and it affects teachers and it affects bus drivers and all sorts of things. So I think the onus, it, look, it, we know that early start times are not good for adolescents, but the onus is on us helping them to actually achieve that time, if at all possible. Um, yeah, that's my, that's my mum hat talking there. I know, but you know what? Like when they're adolescent, they can actually get to the school themselves. Well, that's true. Look, <laughs> the one thing I would really campaign for is um, is later HSC exams. Like I think that could be done without so much interruption. Yeah, and it would really work in young people's you know, favour. They'd do better. And we've yeah. got a question here from Megan. Hi, all. Any advice and evidence regarding how to assist adolescent in managing developmentally appropriate urges to socialise with peers 
via devices late into the night, keeping devices outside the bedroom or switching to do not disturb over time. I have noticed this in my teen clients. They do like to stay up late and that's when they're kind of chatting away to their friends, which fits with the evolutionary theory. So they're staying up to like kind of socialize and get into a group and it's adaptive, but disruptive in the modern day. What do you think? So do we do the hardcore, that's it? no devices in the bedroom what's the what's the yeah I, th- I think it really does come down to the individual teenager um you know socializing is is great and you know during the pandemic we saw how important um online and virtual means of socializing were um for adolescents adolescents maintaining their well-being so it's not necessarily a, a really bad thing but if that young person needs to get up at 5.30 to go rowing and they're chatting with their friends online until 2am, then obviously that's, that's not a good thing. Um, so I, I, really do, I really do think it needs to be tailored to that individual adolescent and what's going on in their life. Um, uh, with, with Sleep Ninja and, and with the kind of therapy that I do, I do encourage a sleep wind down that occurs an hour before bedtime and that usually does involve um, or I encourage it involving adolescents putting their devices away um, and not engaging in in activities that, that um, you know, require adrenaline or lots of alertness or, or lots of cognitive effort and, and socialising is one of those things. Um, so, so generally my preference when um, when engaging with young people around sleep is to say it's better just to not have your phone in your room so you're not tempted to pick it up particularly if they have insomnia and they're they're waking in the night and the first thing they do is they reach for their phone um, I think there are more appropriate um, strategies and methods um, to manage those sorts of sleep disturbance um, than turning to a device for distraction. Um, but yeah, I'd be really interested to hear what Amanda has to say and also to understand how Steph um, manages devices and sleep. Steph is a big one for you, right? Managing that device use in terms of good like sleep yeah, that you get. I I went through a phase where I didn't have it in my bedroom. <laughs> I didn't keep my phone in my bedroom because I was like in the beginnings of me trying to get on top of sleep. Um, I, yeah. I just chose to put it in the kitchen or things like that. Um, but then I think when I developed, a, I guess, a healthier relationship with my phone, um, I felt more comfortable to have it in my room. Um, yeah, I especially when I was a teenager, it was really fun to stay up really late with your friends talking about yesterday's gossip or, you know, like doing all of that social activity. So I did feel when I was a teenager, if I didn't have my phone in my room, I was missing out on something. And I think that's, I think where a lot of it does come from, like no one wants to be that teen that's missing out on all of the fun that's, you know, we're all chatting about it. Um, two o'clock in the morning and then we go to school and then we chat about it again. So, um, yeah, I think it was the fear of missing out on what was going on that really kept me glued to having it with me all the time. So given like, you know, we know that our teens are kind of like sleep deprived and we've got, it's, it's a different generation. Like I don't even, I didn't have a phone growing up. It used to be yeah. attached to a cord. Totally. That's telling, a little bit telling of how old I am. So, <laughs> so we're presenting like the contemporary adolescent is presented with kind of these new challenges. Is it possible for adolescents to actually catch up on sleep on the weekends, Amanda? Like, would you recommend, because I get this question a lot as a clinician, right? Um, can we, we're just going to let them sleep in on the weekend. This is getting ridiculous. Is that okay? Oh, so, so look, I, there are some young people that if they catch up on the weekend, they are still going to get off to sleep on a Sunday night and, and be okay. But the overwhelming majority, I would, what I tend to do is say, if you're going to sleep in, try and keep it to a two hour maximum have your longest sleep in on a Saturday and then have Sunday be a halfway point between your Saturday wake time and your Monday wake time, if that makes sense. So we're, we're allowing a two hour sleep in, 
And I think, Sophie, if you want to jump in here too, I think you were saying maximum one hour. So a oh, yeah. little, little bit Sophie different. Sophie really cracks the whip on this one. <laughs> yeah. But I like, the, I like the relax versus like the really tough mom approach. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you're talking about a two hour and then an in between. Yeah. Yeah. So maximum, maximum two hour on a Saturday and then one hour on a Sunday and then have that Sunday be your halfway point. It's just to try and ease the body clock. So we know any time that we, you know, you sort of sleep, oversleep by two hours or more you're going to have the equivalent jet lag of flying Sydney to Perth um so we really want to try and move the body clock in forward and back in in one hour increments maximum um but uh yeah again I'm just working one-on-one so I can be a little bit more um flexible um yeah so if it's that yeah, I really, I actually really like Amanda's approach. I think it's that happy medium that's probably more acceptable um, to a young person. Is it would Steph? Would you prefer Amanda's approach to a really strict? Nope, you can't adjust your schedule by an hour. Definitely, a hundred percent. If someone said has told me otherwise, I'd be like mm, not listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> but but oh, sorry, I was going to say, Steph, would that work for you? Because I I think the other thing is that there's some people that the flexibility really doesn't work and there are some people that their system can tolerate a little bit of it I think like and I didn't like I didn't know any research behind it but what I naturally do on the weekends anyway is only give myself like an extra two hour like sleep in um so because I've I've realized I think I'm hyper aware of sleeping too much um because in a depressive state I I can and have slept for the whole 12 hours of the day um so it's something that I'm always conscious of um if I am sleeping too much because that is a, a early warning sign for me that I might be slipping in a depressive episode um so I've I've always tried to keep a rigid sleep schedule, but on the weekends or when I have time to sleep in, really only sleep in for an hour extra. And to be honest, um, because I'm I'm in such a routine, I generally don't end up sleeping for more than an like sleeping in for more than an hour anyway, because um it my my clock is synced. Love that. That's just such an awareness of like that fine balance between getting enough rest and not doing so much of it that is going to tip you over to a mental health challenge, which is such a struggle for teens, like first time discovering where that balance is and how it impacts on their mental health. Um, I have a question here on on drugs and alcohol from Taylor, and there's been chat as well. What are the impacts of nicotine, marijuana, alcohol on sleep in teens, and what does the research suggest? I'm just going to take a random guess here. I think it's bad. What do you guys think so <laughs> I'm I'm no sort of sleep neuroscience expert, but certainly um, drugs and alcohol have been shown to have a really significant impact on um, on on the biological processes mm. that happen around sleep and have a really large impact on um, on an individual's sleep architecture, which is basically the, their phases of sleep and um, and essentially the quality of sleep that they that they get. Um, Amanda, do you have more information on that? Not really. Um, I can, I can say more. I I mean, yeah, (laughs) you know, I I think that, um, alcohol, obviously the way that adolescents use alcohol is probably more to binge drink by and large. So, you know, that is very, very different to the the effect that that's going to have on the brain and serotonin and things like that is, is going to be very, very different. Um, you know, but obviously the way that adults might use it, having a glass of wine at night will help you with your sleep onset, but it will then, because alcohol is so hard for the body to break down, it will sort of trigger awakenings throughout the night um, and trips to the bathroom and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I think we can all agree that from a neurodevelopmental point of view, even putting aside sleep, just the, you know, binge drinking and use of um, sort of illicit substances in, in young people is really going to change their, their brain chemistry and, yeah. Sleep architecture. Um, I saw a recent paper, and this may not apply to adolescent, but clinically I see it. Um, People are using alcohol to manage anxiety, maybe around social situations, which a lot of the adolescents sometimes do. Um, But actually has this rebound effect at four in the morning at that later time where the anxiety worsens. So it does this little inhibitory 
you know, mechanism for us that really helps us in that social situation, but later on and actually increases the anxiety when it disrupts sleep. So um, clearly does not work and might even potentially make it a lot worse if it's being used to manage the anxiety. Um, now, a few more questions here. We've got questions on that's drug and alcohol. I'm just going to cut that out as well because we've actually done that one. Um, now, should adolescents use Fitbit monitoring device to help with sleep? This is one of the, because it's getting really popular. We've got all these little, I've got one right now, but I take it off during sleep. So does it work? Amanda, what do you uh, yeah, think? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, think, I think one of the difficulties with research around this area is that the the technology is developing way faster than you can publish so if you look at the data that is published it's it's a little bit outdated and these devices are getting better and better um, but look what I would say is if it's help it does help people to the extent that it helps them to focus on their sleep maybe make them a little bit more like prioritizing sleep, maybe neaten up their sleep hygiene a little bit in the same way that if I give someone a paper and pen sleep diary, their sleep will improve. So the simple act of monitoring can actually improve sleep. But what I would say is don't get obsessed. I see a lot of people really, you know, quite worried about, you know, what happened with their sleep last night. These devices are not great measures, um, particularly of the sleep stage data. So when it says you've had, you know, 10% REM or, you know, I would not believe that data at all, um, that the sleep staging data is not going to be accurate, but they're probably a decent measure of sort of sleep duration. So the total amount of time you've been asleep or your sleep fragmentation, so how much you've moved around in your sleep. Uh, but again, the, re the, the devices are outstripping the research. Um, Sophie, are you up to date on the, the research at all? And did you use it for things like Sleep Ninja? Yeah. We, yeah, we did look, we investigated um, using the phone's accelerometer um, as, as a more objective measure of sleep. But the adolescents who co-designed the app with us were very against that because they didn't want to have their phones near them while they were sleeping, um, which, you know, <laughs> kudos to them. That make, makes total sense and it's what we tell them in, in treatment. So it really didn't make sense to include it. Um, but I think you know, Amanda's absolutely correct. Um, the research is just not, it, it's not, it's almost not in real time really because these things are developing so rapidly and, you know, those early Fitbit devices weren't particularly accurate when compared to um, the data coming out of sleep labs with um, polysonography and, and those sorts of things. So we were really not recommending those devices as accurate measures. But I think one of the really critical aspects of treating young people with sleep problems is finding that balance between saying sleep is really important for your well-being. It's something that you should prioritise and getting adequate, good quality sleep is really important, but not making them really anxious about their sleep because obviously that's going to have that paradoxical effect of actually reducing the duration and the quality of their sleep. So it's really treading that, it's like that, that sort of slippery slope of saying it's important to know how you're sleep, sleeping and to make sure that you're prioritising it but not prioritising it to the point that it's becoming all-consuming and actually um, having that effect where it's having a negative impact. So, yeah, those, those devices, I think, again, it's that looking at the individual, seeing how it helps or doesn't help them and, and making a call based on that. Steph, do you use um, any, like, actigraphy on your fitness watches or you're, you're like, nah? No, I don't and it is for the reason of becoming obsessed and hyper um like really fixating on my sleep because I think because it's been such an issue for me and I wanted to get on top of it in the beginning I was very very prone to like oh, I've only had four hours of sleep tonight uh like and really um looking at it in like micro sort of set like in micro bits rather than like the wider picture um so I think for me it's been protective not to have like apps or like a Fitbit to obsess over it so I completely agree 
So um, what one and, and I am aware we're running down on time, but I think this is quite an important question. So, you know, at what point, um, Amanda, do we decide, let's suppose we've been kind of treating like the insomnia and, um, you know, some of the anxiety around sleep onset. At what point do we start to go, oh gosh, you know, is this, um, is this something else? Do we need to do a sleep study? Like what are some of your tips for like, you know, signs to go, we need to refer for a sleep study now? Yeah, sure. So, so the main purpose of a sleep study is to rule out breathing-related sleep disorders like obstructive sleep apnea, where people stop breathing or their, their oxygen drops, um, or movement-related sleep disorders uh, like periodic limb movement and so on. So when would I refer, a, and particularly an adolescent, because um, it's not common to refer adolescents, look, I think I would refer um, if someone is, is doing the treatment really engaged, doing everything in their sleep is not getting better, I would then want to rule out, is there anything organic that could be contributing to, to the insomnia or to the to the delay in sleep? Um, the other time is obviously when they're giving a positive respiratory history. So they're saying to me, you know, I, I get quite a bit of sleep, but I'm constantly sleepy. I never feel refreshed. I wake with a headache. My dentist tells me I grind my teeth big tonsils and adenoids, um, lots of seasonal allergies, you know, they snore really loudly. Those are the times when I go, okay, we absolutely need to get a sleep study and rule out um, something like obstructive sleep apnea. Okay, that's yeah. really good to know because I often don't know where that tipping point is uh, on that referral. Yeah. Um, so maybe the last question will go to Steph here. Um, what are your tips for, because we've got practitioners listening in and clinicians working with adolescents, um, what are your tips for them for the adolescent who's experiencing sleep problems and maybe like fights with parents over sleep? You know, what can we do to really engage them in um, really practicing some of these techniques, you know, in therapy. I think um, making it as like a collaborative goal, like it's everyone's working towards something together. Because um, I know in the beginning of my treatment, like I was quite resistant or, di or I didn't really think I had a sleep problem because, again, everyone else was doing it. Um, and a, a technique that I guess my clinician helped me use was really make it um, like we were working on it together or it was like part like it was going to be really beneficial um, for me um, and giving a sense of like I think I mentioned ownership again um, so really making it feel like you know the person that you're helping is in control like has control over um, their life and things like that so I think it's about um, yeah like being collaborative in the approach because it like teenagers don't want to be told by their parents let alone another clinician um, so I think yeah that that'd be my sort of tip yeah and so before we finish up um, I might also whip around to Amanda and Soph as well what are some of the tips you might give to practitioners and clinicians listening in in terms of managing sleep in adolescence. I know it's a broad one, but maybe one thing you wish like more clinicians were aware of before we go. Amanda. Um, for me, actually, I'm really passionate about clinicians understanding the science behind sleep. Like I think a lot of people just recommend, sorry, not so much clinicians, but out there, a lot of people will sort of recommend sleep hygiene and they don't understand why, like why shouldn't I nap? That relates to the, you know accruing sleep pressure mm. um you know so for me I really wish the clinicians understood the science behind sleep and also just being really particularly when you're working with adolescents just really being really realistic any change you can get is positive and and um and just being really yeah, just really realistic about you know what's possible with sleep in that age group thanks Amanda what about you so what's the one message you'd love our clinicians to have um it's Probably around if you're seeing a young person for anxiety and or depression to not ignore the um, the sleep component. Um, so to be aware that treating sleep is a really nice in to um, treating the other aspects of their experiences, which might be a little more challenging and more stigmatised to kind of talk about. So sleep is always... Um, a nice way to engage a young person in, in a treatment, even if it's not viewed by them as their primary concern. Um, so that would probably be my top tip. Always consider it as a treatment target. 
And also grab that that app from Seth as well. Check out Fleet Ninja as well. (laughs) I am. I'm absolutely going to be downloading it just to have a look. Um, So just a little reminder that we've got online tools to support you. We've got the Managing Insomnia course by This Way Up as well as Sleep Ninja by the Black Dog Institute. Um, And just a reminder for our practitioners out there as well, we've got the Essential Network for Health Practitioners by the Black Dog Institute. Um, And that's just to support um, you know our health workers who are experiencing mental health challenges um, during this time. Um, do visit our website. We've got so so many you know professional health professional training online, um, and you can also follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, we are not going to have a podcast next month, but the one after that will be on exercise and mental health. So excited about that one. A big thank you to Stephanie for being our wonderful lived experience and sharing your experience with us tonight successfully as well, right? You've really like shown what it's like to be that end where you're managing on a day-to-day basis um, your sleep. Sophie and Amanda, the wealth of knowledge um, that you guys have around sleep and adolescent. Thank you so much um, for joining us tonight. Thank you to our audience as well. Some really interesting questions. We didn't get to all of them. I do apologize. It's pretty tight. Um, But thank you for joining us tonight. And we look forward to seeing you not next month, but the month after that. Thank you very much, guys. Have a good evening. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.